Greetings, salutations, what's good, wagwan, what's happening? Welcome to episode 128 of the Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is PJ, aka the Repeat Beat Poet, your conversational host doing the verbose most as always. I um, hope you're doing okay. Last time I checked, there was still a pandemic on, uh, so I hope you're keeping safe as you can wherever you are. Um, as I record this intro, um, it's been snowing for about three days in the the fine lands of East London, um, and for once the snow is settling, which it never normally does here. Usually our fine British mix of dangerously high pollution levels, high traffic levels, and our relentlessly mild climate turn all of our would-be snow into sleet, slush, black ice, or just more drab rain. Um, So if you can get out into the snow, enjoy it while you can, uh, wrap up, you know, brave the elements, uh, wear a mask, it'll keep your face warm too. Um, Or if you don't want to go outside, just uh, wrap up by, you know, a virtual fire on your computer screen with a cup of tea, maybe something stronger, um, and buckle in for another episode of Lunar Poetry Goodness. This week's guest is poet, editor, publisher and producer Bridget Hart. Um, In their writing, Bridget explores so much. Um, They explore discomfort, resilience, survivorship with this wry anger and wit um, that inspires people to kick back against the world and to dig deep into their own introspective selves. Um, They're also an avid punk. Bridget spent years in the UK's DIY punk scene. Uh, They're a master of immediate and intimate performances, both in person, on the page and uh, on record. Um, Bridget ties together multiple and often contradictory identities and encourages readers and audiences to embrace those nuances and conflicts. Uh, Bridget is also the co-editor of the leading UK spoken word publisher Burning Eye Books and producer of the female and non-binary focused poetry organisation For Books Sake um, who produce a whole load of uh, workshops um, and and events Uh, specifically that's what she said um, for for women and non-binary identifying people. Uh, This chat was recorded on the 28th of January we get into all things poetry and publishing with some delightful detours into how Carly Rae Jepsen is beloved amongst some circles of the punk movement. Um, And Bridget tells us about their upcoming book of poems written about Greece, which is a fantastic film. So remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please save or rate or download it uh, and share it with somebody who might enjoy it. Because word of mouth has always been the best recommendation for us. And the more people talking about poetry, the better. Without any further ado or waffle, let's get into the conversation. This is episode 128 with Bridget Hart. Hello, hello, and welcome to you, the one and only Bridget Hart. Are you there? Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. 
yeah love it um i've wanted uh to well i've wanted to see you on the lunar podcast for for the longest time um when david was hosting i always kept wondering when's bridget hart gonna be on when's bridget gonna be on uh, so uh, so you know it's a bit of a personal win for me to be able to introduce you oh i'm honored i'm really honored by that thank you that's really nice i've always wanted to be on the podcast so that's really cool <laughs> us poetry podcast nerds just proper digging into it I love it I know I know and also at the moment as well it's such a great way just to have a conversation with someone isn't it (laughs) exactly lots of people who I wouldn't get to otherwise uh, chat to regularly I can now have on the podcast Um, and so I've been following you um, for for a good few years now maybe four or five years at least Um, and I know you primarily as a poet but also as a publisher how would you introduce yourself to our wonderful listeners who haven't seen the glory of Burning Eye Books and Bridget Hart yet? Oh, um, well, a bit multidimensional, really. Um, as a poet, I have always generally stuck to the DIY punk scene. Nothing um, gives you thicker skin than performing to a crowd of angry punks who just want to listen to a punk band. <laughs> um, and um, a lot of the ethos that I learned from the punk scene, DIY politics, um, in- inclusivity, that kind of thing, I brought with me into working with Burning Eye Books, um, which I started with them about five years ago, um, just as someone that did some admin for Clive, who is the main publisher at Burning Eye. Um, and in those years, I developed a very unique um, way of publishing poets. I basically just created a system that worked for me. Um, And it's run really successfully since then. Um, Burning Eye publish um, all different types of voices from all over the UK. We only ask that you are an active performance poet. Um, So that could come in any any shape and size, really. And we publish like that as well. It's really great. That's wonderful to be like a performance kind of focused publisher. Um, And I know that... um... Like the reputation that Burning Eye has across across the spoken word community in in the UK and Ireland, um, it really is sort of uh, second to none as a leading poetry press that not only poets feel comfortable, performance poets feel comfortable taking their work to, to you know to you guys and understanding that it it might be um, the process of putting a piece that was created with the stage in mind the process of bringing that to the page is different for every poet and it's different every time, but there's been so many wonderful poems that have come out of like the burning eye stable. And so I immediately, when I was thinking about questions to ask you, I was like, could you maybe just run us through some interesting experiences you've had with writers um, across burning eye, any interesting people to edit any uh any like really powerful books um i was reading uh cosmo cartography by kieran hodges recently um i know you've got a lot of books coming out as well yeah i think one of the great things about publishing a wide variety of people is that a lot of our books are kind of slow burners you know we get the get your instant hits you've got your elvis mcgonagall's and your selena goddens and your vanessa Casules. Um, but then you've got people like Kieran who 
whose book came out with us a few years ago now, um, but is still quietly ticking away in the background. Um, Emily Harrison is another example of that in terms of it's a slow burner and it keeps ticking on and people generate interest as, as time goes on. Um, and I think that's a really great thing about Burning Eye is that we're not just constantly moving through a cycle of who are we publishing next, who are we publishing next. There's always care and attention coming through for um, titles that are a few years old now. And I love that. I think that's great. People are always discovering um, our poets that way. And also because we publish so widely, a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't realize that you had published this this poet. Um, so that's really nice. I think I, Burning Eye has a very unique way um, of, of approaching publishing because we don't generally really go through the book trade to rely on our book sales. We rely on our performance poets to sell their own books. So originally we started off um, with Clive realising that there was a gap between performance poets um, doing gigs but having nothing to sell at their gigs. Um, so he decided, right, let's, let's do some books for some people. And I think because we started out quite early on, we published quite big names like um, Selena and Vanessa and Raymond Antrobus. Um, and that really set a precedent then for um, people putting their trust in us later on. So I try, I think we have a reputation for being a plucky underdog in the literature world, which I think is very true. And I think I take that approach in with me when I think about who we're going to publish and who I want to work with. Um, and I tend to go for the underdogs a lot of the time because I think actually these are people that need a way into the publishing world. And if it wasn't for us, they probably wouldn't get that chance. And so I love the fact that I get to work with such a variety of different people and different approaches and, and voices to that. And a lot of people come to us um, freshly edited. They've worked with, a, with an editor of their own. Um, sometimes I interject um, things where I'm like, yeah, this needs to be changed or this needs to be updated. Um, I think my favourite books are the ones that come to us fully formed um, in terms of, Classic you know. publisher answer right there. Yeah, yeah. But I, <laughs> I, it's more about the idea, I think. When someone's got a solid idea, it sort of almost feels like a, a spoken word show in itself, you know. And I tell people this often. If you're dedicating your time to doing a book, you put as much time and effort into that book that you would do a solo show or a tour or, or, or a big project like that, because it is a big project. It's a long commitment. Um, and we sort of demand your focus with it, really. Um, I've worked with some great people over the last couple of years. Um, I think my favorite from from 2020, let's say, um, would be Bethany Rose, because um, I really loved her book, Neon. Um, um, we spoke briefly about this before we started recording. I just really love the way that she um, encapsulates this very raw magnetism with vulnerability, mental health and queerness. And I would consider her an underdog um, because of the types of things that she's talking about and the way that she's talking about them. Um, Afshan de Souza Lodi as well um, came to us from another press with her book. Um, and it's been a, a long time building and running. But every time that I speak with her, it's such a joy. And I think she was really pleasantly surprised at how much freedom we gave her with her own book, because we're not so heavy on the editorial ourselves. Um, she was allowed, so she could basically do what she wanted with her book. And she was surprised with that because other publishers have been much more restrictive. Um, so, yeah, it's always a pleasure for me to be like, yeah, you could just do what you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the freedom of having a 
publisher that really backs the poet as as the artist you know whether that's in the um in the actual you know editing process to to say i'm here to flesh out the idea that you already have and to work with you on that mm. or whether it's in a more like um uh, a pastoral sense of of you know being able to being able to understand that poet's like you know mental state and and being able to you know be an ear to talk to and and be a sounding board to bounce to bounce off like I think there's something that is quite literally in the pages of burning eye books is <laughs> something that's in the pages of books published by burning eye which has this sort of it has a care to it these books they often feel like they've come from like a family that understands kind of what it is to go through the process and and could you maybe talk about like how how burning eye has has kept its ethos as like an independent grassroots publisher while also having you know and i'm gonna toot your trumpet here while having some quite quite phenomenal successes under your belt you know like um being an underdog in the wider literary world while still being um you know fervently fighting for as you say marginalized voices um um, and and you know the underdog um it's it's not easy well I mean it is easy for me because I'm someone in my personal life who's very I stick to my guns about things and I don't compromise um and if I don't feel that something is safe or just then I won't involve myself in it or I will speak up um and I feel like that is an extension of my voice with burning eye um because I value individuality so much which is why all of our books the poets choose their own book covers they design their own covers every cover is different um I think um we might have a little bit of a reputation for being quite hardball in terms of the fact that we're we don't budge so much, but I think that's really important, especially in today's sort of um, constantly moving politics, social media, you know, opinions, this, that and the other. I think us being like, this is who we are and this is what we're going to do um, and remaining um, supportive of spoken word artists and not trying to um, assimilate into um, similar sort of um, indie poetry presses like we're just going to do this and this is what we're going to do. And there's been a couple of times when I've been like, well, maybe we should be doing sort of more literary edity stuff, or maybe we should be moving in this direction. And Clive's always been like, no, this is what we do. And after a while I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. This is what we're doing. Um, And it works. And I'm always really pleasantly surprised. We're not surprised, but I'm always really um, grateful that people come back to us time and time again, either to buy books um, or to be published with us again and um, I think because we have that stability and we we very firmly we know who we are and what we're doing um, and that we we're not really bothered about what other people are doing in the in the publishing world so much I mean we love what people are doing but it it, it doesn't because we're doing something that's so focused on spoken word which a lot of other presses are not that focused on I think it allows us that room to to really um yeah stand mm, our ground important it's so it's such a um such a refreshing thing to hear from a publisher to know that um to know that 
you're far less likely to be swayed by the whims and the trends and and for want of a better phrase maybe um maybe like the chatter around around politics and things that aren't substantive you know um yeah there's that there's there's a whole list of of poets on burning eye whose 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 published works also have that sense around them there's a solid set of values that are fluidly shown both as you the publisher and by the writers on the press i remember when i was reading um I think it was Maddie Godfrey's book, How to Be Held. Um, it also turned up in, in, in Tyrone Lewis's Blackish that was released last year. Um, uh, Hannah Raymond Cox has, has a book called Amuse Girl, um, where, where the kind of way that she approaches the book is entirely based on recipes. Yeah. Meanwhile, Tyrone's going entirely through, well, not entirely, <clears throat> but relying a lot on on his work within film and and, and his visual like uh, his visual style i know he was involved in putting together the you know as you say the cover image for his book yeah and each of the way that you let the poets bring themselves to their work while also never shrinking parts of themselves i think it's like an admirable thing that makes burning eye books really really like you know engaging I will always come back I'm one of these repeat customers Bridget I'm one of these people who just <laughs> comes know. back and is like I don't know what to get for Christmas I'll get somebody a burning eye book yeah great yeah I think <laughs> I think it's important to give people as much autonomy as possible if that's what they want I think some people want more um, hands-on editorial book trade representation and that is totally fine um, you know we're not against that at all but I think we just wanted to do something a bit different. And because we're doing spoken word and it's all performance based and a lot of it's like sometimes it just comes down to, OK, is this an entertaining voice or not? Is this someone that's engaging um, or is this someone that sells a lot of books or has the potential to sell a lot of books for themselves and stuff like that? It's all like a match of ethos comes into consideration during the submissions process that is something that I look for am I going to get along with this person am I going to work with them well do our politics or our points of view line up in some ways are they interested in keeping their autonomy or do they want someone to hold their hand through this process mm, it's really good to hear um to hear the sort of things you're actually looking for um from from poets who are, who are submitting um I think when this episode goes out the Burning Eye submissions window will still be open. Um, could you just maybe give us the details around that? Because um, I know many of our listeners might have, you know, might have books that they want to submit. Of course, yeah. So we're um, currently open, um, open window for submissions for pamphlets and full collections um, until the 28th of February. Um, and that is via Google Forms. Um, it's the first time that we've used Google Forms as an free alternative to submittable. So it saves everybody a bit of money really because <laughs> we're cheap and um um we're looking yeah we're look, i'm i'm for this round of submissions i'm really looking for queer voices um um quite specifically i think um we've obviously published a lot of queer people but i recently came out as non-binary um, and I'm really thirsty for reading more books by trans and non-binary poets. And I think there needs to be a bigger reputation. And I'm hoping that with our platform, 
we I will be able to um, bring some new queer underdogs into the into the spotlight a little bit. Um, so if that's you, um, or if that's not you, but you still are a performance poet and you want to send us your work, please do. I would really love to read it. Um, follow our biggest thing is please follow the instructions. Read read the guidelines. Any press will tell you, please read the guidelines. It's very important. And just as a quick side note, as someone who is non-binary, for cis people out there, we have a box that says that asks for your pronouns. This is not an invitation for you to joke around. I I'm not joking. Like your pronouns is just common practice now. It's common decency to give them. So if you want to joke around and put your shoe size in there, I'm probably not even going to read your submission. Have you had that? Has someone yes. have people? Yes. Oh, is this the sort of the Ricky Gervais I identify as a helicopter stale joke sort of thing? Yeah, really bad. Um, and you need to understand. You need to know if you're going to um, submit to a press, you should know who you're submitting to. You should know what they do and maybe a little bit about the editors. And it's not really hard to find me on social media. And it's not really hard to find out that I use they them pronouns either. Um, so. Maybe just have a think about it before you want to write a joke in that box um, and respect, you know, the rhetoric of pronouns and that people have different pronouns to you. That was just a quick, you know, I'm watching you <laughs> vibe. Oh, but it's an important thing. And especially because we speak from, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a cis man. Um, and within, within the United Kingdom right now, the concerted, like, you know, state backed attack mm. consistently on trans people um has yeah. been such a nasty thing to see and it's it's sadly something that the UK is known for worldwide is it's is it is its current like attack on um on on trans people who yeah. are only fighting for the same rights that everybody else is entitled to and yeah. they are entitled to um Absolutely. and so to be to make a point of centering those voices through your publishing press um and to do it in a serious way you know this isn't jokes this isn't this isn't flippant these are lives and liberties that we're really discussing and that we're fighting for um yeah yeah i I just want to say that back you a thousand percent on that bridget yeah we've got a um line in our submissions policy that says um uh, in a time when you have to stand up for what you believe in, we stand for dignity and equality for all. Um, and I, I constantly quote that to people. Um, so if you're thinking of putting a joke in there, maybe think differently because it, it can come across as violence. Sorry. You know, <laughs> it's... Nah, let's yeah, go there. It, let's it, go there. It, Real talk. It, 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 that's what it feels like. And I don't appreciate it as an editor who is non-binary. And I'm very aware that I'm in a gatekeeper position and that I have a responsibility to be as inclusive of all people as possible. But if you make that impossible for me, then I'm not gonna I'm not gonna engage with it really. You know, the, the that time is over. Um pronouns and things like that are becoming much more um visible and talked about in the public. So feigning ignorance is not an excuse either. So yeah. Mm. <laughs> thank you thank you for you know for just bringing that bringing that message seriously um because I, I i feel taking the time to uh 
as a cis person, right, taking the time to listen to, read, and learn about like trans people, trans identities, the life of trans people, you, you have to do so much work to wade through bad intentions, bad faith articles, and viewpoints that don't actually have like the well-being of 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 trans people and the struggle for trans liberation in mind like and so to know that there are people who do hold these views and are fighting for them seriously oh yes <laughs> man um and i'm gonna use that to kind of like slowly segue into like the diy punk scene oh right? yeah what you were what you were talking about in terms of holding your beliefs like openly and fighting for them seriously like this is a thing that i love about the diy punk movement it's also why i love hip-hop so much as well and i know there's a lot a lot yeah. of crossover there but could you talk about maybe when you started in the diy punk scene as a poet because that's got to be some frightening gigs <laughs> yeah i've done some pretty um wild luckily when i've had a beer i'm like really gobby so it's not too bad um <laughs> Uh, so I have been part of the DIY punk scene since I was about 13 when I went to my first ska punk show. Woohoo! Um, but it wasn't until I was in my early 20s and I was going out with, at the time, a cis male person. Um, and they were in a band and I was really, and me and my friends were really starting to be like, Okay, there's some real inequality going on here. Like, what? Like, why do why do we all feel like accessories all of the time? Or, and for me especially, I was trying to fight for some attention and some limelight um, in the context of my boyfriend and his band because I felt like I deserved my own platform. Um, and I'd obviously been writing poetry for a little while anyway, um, and so I just started doing it at house shows. So sweaty kitchens and living rooms and stuff. And, you know, mostly for my friends who were very supportive and, and really good. But then I started writing more poetry that was about um, sexism and punk, um, inequality, that kind of thing. Um, really, uh, really talking about um, women's experiences in punk and, and, and how we are not encouraged to pick up instruments. We are encouraged to be accessories to boys in bands Um and, you know, there's just this, like, no confidence that, that um, non-cis men have when it comes to fronting bands, starting playing musicians. You know, there's no accessible route for us because we're not encouraged to do that at a younger age. And so I was getting really frustrated all the time. So I was writing this poetry and I was going to shows and I was screaming about it on stage. And, you know, there'd be, like, the girlfriends of the people in the band at the front, like, starry-eyed, like, yes, this is totally my experience. Um, you know, some men would sort of pay attention to me, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I uh, started my own band, um, picked up a bass guitar for the first time. And like six weeks later, we had our first gig. It was really Riot Girl. It was really cool. Um, and I incorporated poetry into the band that we were doing, um, which was really great. Um, and then I met Henry Raby, who is a DIY punk poet based in York. Um, and we became each other's sort of northern and southern counterparts. Um, we did a Riot Nerds tour, which was just us two going around um, doing a doing a punk tour, really, just but doing poetry and stuff. And like, it's a really weird thing because poetry and punk has always been really synonymous. It's always been hand in hand. But there was 
a lot of disinterest I think in terms of punk in terms of poetry being at punk shows and stuff that I found as I moved out of the main punk sort of DIY scene and into more of the fringes of it in the queer scene especially um and punks of color as well that poetry was and different types of performance art were more welcomed into the gig environment um and I yeah really enjoyed it and it was really good and I've tried to sort of keep my foot into it whilst at the same time not having I feel like I've been pulled more towards poetry the poetry scene the older I've got because of my work with Burning Eye and for book's sake and less about the punk scene but I will always be a DIY punk in my heart (laughs) yeah I think it's a it's a sensibility that never leaves you really is it it's like you know people say about punk it's not a genre it's like it's a way of life yeah you know it's an attitude yeah yeah absolutely and I think learning how to um perform in those kinds of environments where people aren't there to listen to you and everyone's talking at the same time as you and like all of these things people at the bar there's men spitting at you there's like all of this stuff going on and then going into a polite poetry performance it's like oh (laughs) I see everyone's really well behaved here (laughs) Yeah, it's like I was listening to um, so it, it just something just popped into my head because um, I was listening to uh to uh John Cooper Clark's uh, autobiography and memoir um, you know, while I was walking around a couple months ago during lockdown, mm. and and what you said about um, about how once you get into the punk scene and then you get into the layers or like you know the layers that maybe aren't as um as visible as other layers within the punk scene the queer punk scene uh you know the the, the punks of color like groups and then obviously all the intersections around that i think that's um it, it makes sense that poets and poetry would be drawn to punk because not all punks are john cooper clark <laughs> like no. and by that i mean literally world famous multiple you know awards that that as an that as a model is definitely not indicative of what most punk poets are doing um and when you mentioned that you and henry raby did a tour i'd heard about this tour but i didn't get a chance to go and i just maybe could you talk a bit about about that and like contextualize it what was going on um at the time what was it like what were the venues like what were the crowds like what were your pieces like yeah, so we did, um, so the original plan was that we were going to do a northern tour and then a southern tour, but we only ever got around to doing the northern part of the tour. So I, I went up to, um, I actually did a house show in London um, uh, along Peckham High Street at a old venue, DIY house show venue called Asbury Castle um, for International Women's Day, where I performed with um, someone, uh, with my friend Cassie, who I now run a podcast with, um, but it was uh, run by Bren, who is the front woman of Petrol Girls. It was her house at the time. So I went from there for a nine-hour bloody coach journey up to York, and me and Henry sort of, it was really DIY. We wanted to basically do a DIY punk tour, which is everyone crams into a tiny car with all of the amps, and we drive around, and we eat chili for five days. <laughs> And uh, we sleep on floors. Is is, is chili the important Well, it just, like, yeah, I feel like it's a real staple with DIY punk promoters. Like, a lot of DIY punk promoters, and this is more often in Europe than it is here, but a lot of us will make a big vat of food to feed the bands that we're putting on. 
it's sort of like a curtsy thing it's like yeah you should eat you should you we should feed you so um you know we just make massive vats of chili or pasta or, or whatever and everyone tucks in and it's great um so it's a lot of like yeah big pots of chili and food like that and um yeah we did some um did kind of a mix of shows that were like uh, poetry shows and sort of more punk stuff and then we got in a van and drove from York um up through Northumberland to um Scotland and did some shows in Glasgow and Edinburgh um both with DIY punk promoters um and one was at a really cute little tea shop actually it was really really cool um and it was just really wanting to to mesh this idea of of you know if you're doing a poetry chore then you've got to get booked with apples and snakes or you've got to go around to all of these individual poetry promoters and stuff and actually for me and Henry it was like well yeah we're just going to contact all of our punk promoters that we know and see if they'll do like an acoustic show where we headline um and yeah a few people went for it and it was really good fun and like you know really solidified mine and Henry's um relationship and it was great and I really wish that I could do it again (laughs) (laughs) One day when when the uh, when the forever rolling state of of lockdown in the UK due to our incredibly laissez-faire government, um, yeah, absolutely. When, when this when this situation shifts, maybe maybe another DIY punk tour is on the cards. Yeah, maybe I think it would be really cool. A lot of my my material has really like so Henry's is really solidified in um, politics and punk and and like nerdy culture, which I love completely. Um, and my poetry has always been a bit more, a bit less punk and more emotional and, you know, about human nature and human interaction and things like that. But because I'm taking it into the punk context, I'm giving a space for punks to have feelings <laughs> um, and to and to take note of their feelings rather than just, um, you know, this collective, uh, you know, alcoholism and things like that, which is, which is a, a big thing in, in punk a lot of the time, you know, the identity comes along with chain smoking and drinking a lot and you know and trying to soften punk a little bit is sort of what I wanted to do I really like the plurality involved when you have a passion for for um like like I say not a genre of music but but a passion for like a culture you know like a full culture yeah Um, I, I always love seeing how um how the different people involved in creating this community, this culture, this scene, how when they bring themselves to it wholly, it makes the vibrancy, the dynamism of of the community, it, it really like foregrounds that and and helps and helps the helps the community be dynamic. Um, oh yes, I'm I'm just oh, I miss gigs. <laughs> yeah, I miss gigs. I'm, I really miss gigs. I just really miss hugging my friends and yeah and like the community as well it's sort of like punk the punk community sort of barely hanging on by a thread really because there's no gigs and that's what really brings all of us together it's the music yeah music and the poetry music and the poetry and the pop music afterwards (laughs) because all all punks all punks whether they admit it or not they love a good pop dance party what what are we talking? Are we talking like manufactured bubblegum pop? Are we talking a bit of disco? Are we talking like 
that I mean, there's a lot of cheesy, guilty pop to be enjoyed when you're not, you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so getting out to like bad brains, you know. Okay, so all right, I'll put it into context. I once um, did um, the after party for Bristol Anarchist Book Fair um, as part of Lady IY Fest, which I um, set up when I moved to Bristol. Um, and we had this like really heavy, like punk, London punk band come and headline for us. And they were like squat punks, you know, really serious punks. Um, and at the end of the night, it turned into like this big sort of queer pop disco kind of thing. And the lead singer from this band kept coming up to me and trying to change the music to Psychobilly. Um, <laughs> and was really drunk and was really like, this is a punk, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you might want to go and tell those guys over there with the Mohawks who are absolutely belting out the lyrics to Carly Rae Jepsen right now that it's not punk. Um and eventually he just sort of left. But it was, but it, and it was just sort of like, I, I thought we'd all grown out of like this mentality of like, well, you, if you're a punk, then you can't listen to any other type of music. Like, fuck off. I can listen to what I want. Like most teenage girls in their teenagers, when they get into punk, they hide most of their music taste because there are so many cis men that will literally just put women on the spotlight and be like, oh, well, you like Bad Brains, then name all of their albums, you know. And, and it's really like, it's like a test. You have to pass the test in order to be a punk. So when you get older and, and being able to create a space where you can be like, yeah, we've had punk, but now we're going to have pop, and it's great. And to allow people just to be who they want to be and to have fun and not worry about the image, you know. The image is whack. <laughs> Yeah, like it's it throws up these these weird like um, I guess the, the 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 weird posturing of purists in mm. whatever culture. Like it's always such a damaging force, um, especially because you know I think back to the history of punk in the UK, and I'm thinking about like Don Letts, the Rebel Dread, DJing. Mm at punk shows when there were no punk records to play. So he was playing reggae, you know, and he was playing dub. And and if you can pretend that punk has only ever been 100% about this thing, then it, then it does the whole genre, it does the culture a disservice. It doesn't allow it to, to, to grow and to be, I've used the word again, but like to be dynamic, you know, it's like, yeah equivalent of 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 taking all the air out of a fire it can't burn anymore it burns itself out yeah yeah I think it can be really restrictive which is why it was so good when feminist punk became such more of a um a big thing and that was around the time when I was doing poetry at shows um because it allowed me a space to be really angry and for that to be a supportive space instead of you know it being well why are you being so fucking angry (laughs) Um, and it was great and it was really nice and now I'm just older and I just don't care as much <laughs> about <laughs> about image and things like that you know the fashion or whatever it's like like we said earlier like it's a state of mind now for me it's a total state of mind I, I completely agree I'm really glad to um I'm, I'm really glad to hear it from you because I think I see it in the way you carry yourself across your work as a poet across your work as a as a publisher um and then you know listening to your podcasts because I'm a fan oh, thank you 
I think um so we're about uh we're about halfway through now um and I'm not sure if I actually mentioned it to you before um but if you would like to read a poem or if you may have any poetry for us yeah then um then I think this would be um a good point um a good point to have it okay. mainly because I miss hearing you read Bridget I miss seeing Ooh. you read live I think um, just while you're flicking through the uh, the digital notebooks or maybe the physical notebooks, um, I'll just tell the listeners a quick story um, about uh, maybe the, I think it was the last time I saw you in person. It was uh, Uni Slam, um, oh, which yeah. is the um, yeah the university slam competition run by um, uh, 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 Toby Campion and his incredible crew of poets and writers. Um, and it's a really wonderful weekend. And we were in Birmingham maybe two weeks before the lockdown hit, maybe mid-March, early March. Yeah, it um, was really the last thing, I think. Yeah, It was, yeah. It was this, like, sheer um, coming together of of poets there for poetry and everybody there to facilitate, like, some great, great poetry. Um, and the thing about Unislam is that it feels so intense for the time that yeah. you're there it's only three days but you have the entire emotional roller coaster uh, r- roller coaster um and i was there uh, doing some uh, doing some guest spots alongside the roundhouse poetry collective which meant that we were doing sacrificial poems for the slams um for for, for the heats yeah and i saw you judging one of the heats bridget and there was a moment where you know there was really intense poem that i think uh I'm, I'm think it was about um, abuse or trauma, or there was definitely trauma or abuse um, mentioned in it. Um, and after, like you know, the scores have been given, we had a really, uh, we had a really important conversation for me across that weekend. Um, you know, just just outside and off to the side, and it was about protecting ourselves emotionally from the kind of overload and onslaught. And then also making sure that we felt that we could tell participants, you know, younger poets, maybe less experienced slammers, that mining their own trauma and mining, like, you know, the negative things that have happened is not the only way to go about creating an effective slam poem. Yeah. Um, And I just, yeah, this that little five minute conversation we had in, you know, wherever it was, I think the Birmingham uh, Hippodrome. Yeah, it was the big spaceship building. It was such a weird building. (laughs) I still get lost there. Yeah, I know. I remember that as well. And I think it was really, uh, the first year I did Unislam, it didn't feel as safe as it did the years afterwards because there was such a good response. Um, And I have complex PTSD and I really don't want that to get in the way of me doing my job or me um, encouraging and teaching younger people coming up through the poetry world how to be responsible with their feelings. Um, and so it was really great to be able to say, I actually need five minutes outside. <laughs> I'm just going to go and do this. And the, the person who did the poem as well, I thought the poem was excellent. I thought it was a really it good was, poem. Yeah, I remember that. It's just with PTSD, it's so unpredictable. Like you just don't know. And it's just the subject matter that he was talking about that just triggered me. And it was so unfortunate because I think he felt really bad about it. And I didn't want him to feel bad about it because his poem was excellent. Um, It's just sometimes you just can't see how these things are going to come up. And I think with the added of like all day of listening to poetry, 
you know, I was really tired and it all just like compounded. But I remember you giving me this really anchoring hug outside. And that was a highlight of the, the festival for me. It's such a strong memory. And yeah, I, I thought it was important to bring that memory to the podcast so that people can hear about like the types of conversations and connections that are built at large events like UniSlam. Mm. They really do hold like, you know, the fabric of, 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 of the independent poetry community, especially the spoken word scene. You know, those moments and those relationships are, are really the fabric of so much of our lives. Um, so I wanted to 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 just share that Ooh. before hopefully you share a poem and then we can talk about Greece. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to do a Greece poem. Um, my, um, I think I announced that I was doing this collection at Unislam and it's come on so far since then. So I'm going to do the title piece from the collection. The collection is called 10,000 Bits of Gum. Um, and it was estimated that 10,000 bits of gum were chewed during the filming of Greece, the musical, the film. Um, so this is um, the title piece um, inspired by all of those circulating bits of gum. One, Jan loves to chew gum, to snap it against her tongue over Rizzo's shoulder in the bathroom. The ladies preen, she watches behind polka dot peepers. Two. Marty chews her cheek off for Vince Fontaine. He is impressed when her pearls run scarlet down the camera lens, laps it up like fame. She tastes like maraschinos. Three. Frenchie blows anxiety into something pink for the angels to deflate in a song that tells her she should give up on her dreams. So she goes back to school and blows up a chem lab. Four. Doody can't stop chewing. At the dance, off camera, his jaw seizes up. McGee is frantic hips and stiff mouth as Blanche relaxes it with frozen peas. Five. Patty Simcox gets gum in her hair, shrieks and flaps like a gull in plastic, cuts herself out and buries the remains in her childhood jewellery box. Six. Kinnicky catches Putsy sticking wet gum to the swiped bumper to make it stick takes the gum and fingers it into Putsy's ear. Seven. Sandy has never chewed gum in her life. Frenchie shows her how, puts two fingers to her lips and lights a cigarette. This is how the French do it. Eight. Blanche only chews because she gave up smoking. She never pinches one from Mrs Murdoch. No way. The two of them don't drink beer from the bottle and pretend to drive chariots in the auto shop. Nine. She makes cha-cha noises when gnashing her gum, but this isn't how she got the nickname. On the set, she has a reputation for a sweet tooth, always bringing Mexican desserts and laughter. Ten. In the end... They made a life-size sculpture of Eugene and wheeled it into the gym for one last prank. 10,000 bits of gum chewed and smushed into a masterpiece. At the bottom, a plaque reads, Caution, Drip Hazard. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I want to, like, I want to, like, applaud and, like, throw my hands up. <laughs> Thank you. I actually haven't read that one out before. Um, 
um, I haven't actually ha I know I haven't had a chance to actually perform any of these really um so uh, that was really good um to to do that thanks <laughs> it is my pleasure and I'm sure uh, our listeners will enjoy that as well um so I have to ask um and we've had this conversation you know across uh, across many many a good pub drink um why Greece and what is your obsession with Greece disclaimer I do love Greece as well and I will often be seen you know strutting down the street singing a song that is probably from Greece um but your 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 levels of Greece fandom are properly <laughs> properly high and that poem phenomenal as it is is what you said one of an entire collection about Greece poems yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> it's weird because um I I didn't realize how much I loved Greece until until I started writing this collection and I think I um I grew up in a single parent working class household where my mum was always at work she was rarely at home and I think I learned a lot about human behavior from watching films like Greece um and like cult teen films at the time you know the 90s and the early 2000s that era of like teen film um uh John Hughes films oh Empire yeah records ferris bueller maybe yeah romeo and michelle's high school reunion still a firm fave um and i i don't know i think i there's a scene in greece where kinnicky turns to danny and he's like will you be my second at thunder road and they hug and it's like such a soft moment that suddenly is really covered up by, oh, no, we're not allowed to be like that because we're men, um, which is hilarious. And I think I initially wrote a poem about Kinnicky's softness because I always found Kinnicky to be quite a soft boy. Um, and it kind of just spiralled from there, really. And I took inspiration from a lot of different things. So there's a poem about Riz, Rizzo in the collection that is after the um, Frank O'Hara poem, The Day the Lady Died, because... The day they filmed Look at Me, I'm Sandra D, Elvis died. Um, and so I've taken elements that existed while whilst filming backstage on set, what's happening in, um, in the wider context of the time and molded it within the characters and the context of, of Greece as well. So there's a lot of like history kind of bouncing in there. I looked up a lot of queer history at the end of the 1950s, early 60s. Um, for inspiration for the characters that I've written about um, and Greece has this everyone thinks everyone sort of assumes that Greece is really heteronormative and it is but also it's a musical and there's so much campness in musicals so much campness yeah absolutely and I really wanted to bring out the campness in Greece and really bring out the queerness and the potential that these characters could be outside of this sort of Danny and Sandy oh heteronormative you know kind of thing so I basically delete them from the collection they're not really I don't really mention them at all in it because I don't think that they're the important characters of Greece at all <laughs> I'm at, back again to the underdog thing I'm always like who's in the background what are they doing I want to know their story instead um and so it's just sort of got born from that really and now I have like 20 page collection um of Greece poems and people love it because everyone's got an opinion about it um and I really struggle with writing um because of PTSD uh, I really struggle to sit down and write things because I'm so terrified about being triggered um that writing about Greece has been so much fun 
um, I'm really not triggering at all in some ways. And I, and it has really allowed me to explore queerness um, and gender and, and playing with it. Um, so yeah, I'm really proud of it, but also at the same time, like, I can't believe I've written this collection. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. I, I, I really can't wait. Like sometimes you need a, um, sometimes you need a piece of art or an album or a film or something that is so, so deep and so like uh so heartfelt you know the connection and the passion that you have for Greece is so deep and so heartfelt <laughs> you can use that as a prism through which to investigate quite literally all of life <laughs> yeah yeah and it's been great and um I'd said to a lot of people at Unislam last year as well like you know especially we were talking about trauma and writing and things and I'm like you know think back to when you have joy with writing and for me that was like writing fan fictions when I was younger with my best friends you know because we're like super nerdy and like injecting characters from films tv shows games into the stories that we were writing and that freedom and that joy that it gave me to do it and that's what I found again in writing this collection and I think I'm really proud of it and I'm really glad to have written something and stuck with it I haven't run away from it and I think that's a really um, important for me personally to celebrate. Mm, and it also speaks to like joy. It speaks to the importance of of of, of centering like centering joy in in the creative process. Like it doesn't mm. always have to be a slog. It doesn't always have to be that um, that uh, you know a place of not only like discomfort, but that place of like active pain like it's mm. painful sometimes to write poems that deal with you know um difficult personal experiences or deal with just you know for me it's a lot of straight up just anger and rage mm. and frustration and fury um and and sometimes those poems need to come out in a way which does center that rage and like center that fury but many other times I'm like you know what I'll just write about like the squirrels that are running across my back garden. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like great. I'll take joy in that. Yeah. I think there is a real preoccupation with writing about your own trauma or the identifying groups that you belong to. Um, but, you know, it's become much more prevalent in, in the last few years in terms of like, like identity politics has entered poetry basically. Um, and I think, it is important, obviously, Burning Eye champions writing like that and we champion those voices and, and there's a time and a space, but there is also a time and a space to play and have to fuck around a bit and just just do what you want. And I feel that that level of freedom with the Grease stuff. It's just been so helpful to, to have that focus this year and to feel like I'm writing something. Because on the other hand, you know, of me not writing things, I'm then incredibly hard on myself when I don't write things. I'm like, well, I'm not going to write this because I need to protect myself. But then the other side of my brain is like, well, why aren't you writing? You're useless. It's yeah. exhausting. But being able to just kind of take this to one side, and it wasn't even like I was like, yeah, I'm going to write a full collection about Greece. It was just like, how many poems or how many ways can I work out all my feelings about Greece? you know and it's been it's been really fun and I've really enjoyed it 
well, have we got a publication date? You know, can I pre-order this? Can, can I pre-order this yet? I need <laughs> to make sure that I can schedule in some Grease re-watching time as well and Grease 2, but we don't talk about mm, Grease 2. Yeah, I mean, there is like a couple of poems in here that mention Grease 2. Um, I was going to do more in defence of Grease 2, but the only thing I could think of in defence of Grease 2 is that the songs, some of the songs are slightly better. Um, but apart from I that, can't remember any of the songs. Mm, no, okay, that's fair enough. I mean, I'll I'll leave that with you to to um to go back to and, and discover again for yourself. Um, I um thought about sending to, it to a publisher, but I think I'm just going to DIY it and self-publish it. Um, partly because I just think it's you know I like to have autonomy with things, and I feel like this is something that is sort of small and on the fringes of things and I think doing it DIY adds to that um so I'm still working I'm working through the illustrator who did the artwork for my first book Better Watch Your Mouth um Lisa Rose she's great um queer illustrator and she's done the front cover and she's going to do some internal images so it's going to be it's going to be self-published but it's going to be a beautiful looking collection (laughs) can't wait can't wait to add it to my to my growing uh, list of burning eye and burning eye affiliated writers <laughs> there's a whole section in my shelf which is which is burning eye yeah I do that I have arranged all of my poetry books by publisher <laughs> that's that's real poetry nerd behavior but yeah. you know totally here for it totally here for it yeah yeah good okay that's good <laughs> um oh we are coming up um to the to the to the tail end to the to the end mm, oh. sad face um, of of our allocated recording time um i had i had one sort of wild card question that i didn't know exactly when to ask but i think that now is as good a time as any um if you could only pick one right mm-hmm. punk music or poetry if you had to pick one which one would you pick poetry you could only like, <laughs> Oh, it's straight poetry. Straight poetry, yeah. And why? Um, because I, I don't know. I mean, poetry has such more scope for different types of emotion, and I think punk, despite its margins, is um, quite restrictive. I think poetry has more scope to be free than punk does these days, nowadays, you know. I um I feel like the punk scene is very much like you know, this is who you are and, and blah, blah blah. Whereas in poetry, it's like anyone can just do it. It doesn't matter what background you come from or what type of person you are or how old you are or what abilities you have or the colour of your skin. It's anyone can do it, and it's just there and it's accepted. Whereas in the punk scene, it's like everything's a fucking conversation all the time. <laughs> oh, such a refreshing view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just is what it is, really, isn't it? You know, not to say that I don't love punk, but it is sort of not as important to me as it once was. Well, that's, I mean, you know what that is? Growth. Yeah, just growth. That <laughs> yeah, it is growth. I think this. I mean, obviously, I still listen to punk music, and I still have my Tips and Beans podcast with my best friend Kathy. Um, which is a lot about punk but I don't know poetry I think I've really just accepted that poetry is where my heart's at these days and I'm just fully embracing it which brings me on to the final question a question which um, has been asked at the end of 
almost every lunar episode um, and a question which is as broad, but maybe you've already answered um, in part. And, and that question is the perennial question, why poetry? That's a really good question. <laughs> why poetry? Um, I don't know. I think, like I said earlier, I've always relied on film and media and things like that for um, guidance, especially when I was a teenager and I was at home on my own all the time. Um, and I have a lot of complex feelings. And I think poetry really speaks to those um, veiled spaces between feelings or um, instances. Um, you can read a poem about someone's grief and you can feel the grief because you've experienced not what they've experienced, but the way in which they're describing their experience and the way that the words are on the page and the way that you're reading it in yourself. And you can take things away from that. And poetry constantly surprises me like that. It can catch me off guard um, so well. Um, I need that sometimes because I'm constantly on guard. Um, and yeah, I just think it's uh, beautiful and has it's just never ending, isn't it? It's great. See, that's a wicked answer. Everybody always says, I don't know, and then drops sheer gems once they get going with the answer to that question. <laughs> Thank you, Bridget. That's good. I was like, what, what did I just say? Was it rubbish? <laughs> <laughs> it's the joy of um, a free-flowing conversation is that we don't have to worry about that. We can just talk mm. freely and openly and deeply and honestly and passionately and hopefully, interestingly as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, thank you for spending this time with us on the Lunar Poetry Podcast. Um, Bridget, just how can people uh, get in contact with you um, and get in contact with Burning Eye Books? So you can find me across um, Instagram and Twitter. Those are the only social media platforms I have left. <laughs> um, uh, at B, like the animal, heart, yeah. Um, you can find Burning Eye Books on all platforms at Burning Eye Books. Um, burningeyebooks.co.uk will take you to our main website and you can find our blog and our web store and our submissions policy if you would like to submit um, and if you like more of my work and what I do um, you can check out for book's sake who I am a producer with who are a um, um, queer-led um, champion of women and non-binary writers throughout the country um, we've got a queer heartbreakers ball event coming up on valentine's day this year um online which you should definitely check out we've got some great acts um and it's going to help us raise some money so that we can get through the next year <laughs> and uh, and yeah and that but thank you so much for having me this has been really really nice the space that you've created is really nice and yeah i've really loved it thank you for inviting me absolute joy absolute joy thank you bridget and finally if you're looking for other wonderful poetry podcasts if you go to the lunarpoetrypodcast.com uh, you will find the burning eye books podcast listed as part of our massive podcast finder amazing over 100 yeah over 100 poetry podcasts based in the uk and ireland um, and that's just a free resource for anybody who's looking for it um, I think that's all of the admin at the tail end of the episode, and I will see you in the outro. Cheerio, listeners. Thank you once again to Bridget for their time and experience and conversation, and to you for sticking around. Give yourself a pat on the back for listening all the way through. 
I'm glad you could make the time for us. Uh, for more from Bridget, head over to bridgetheart.wordpress.com um, and if you're a performing poet with a pamphlet or a collection, head over to burningeye.co.uk forward slash submit to send your work in to easily one of the best indie poetry presses in the UK, if not the world. Um, all of the links will obviously be in the description. Um, just a couple of admin bits and notes of gratitude to do before we round off. Um, we're still working to get the recent transcriptions for this first set of comeback episodes uploaded. Um, just hold tight for those coming soon. We're sorry about the inaccessibility there. Um, in some personal news, I've got a poem published in the latest anthology from 1010 Press. Um, they're a wicked little micro-press run by uh, Sophia Amina. Um, this publication is called The Black Anthology Language. It's endorsed by the T.S. Eliot Prize-winning general all-round Don Roger Robinson. Um, this is the third in 1010's series of anthologies that sees like different groups responding to the theme of language. So the first two were the Working Class Anthology and the Brown Anthology. And in this book, it's the Black Anthology. And my piece, What Does Black Power Mean, um, shares pages with like some, some really, really great writers. I won't shout them all out now, but like there's um, uh, Tembe Mavula, there's the uh, legendary Swahili poet uh, Muhammad Kalef Al-Ghassani, um, there's uh, 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 Tanatse Gumbura as well. Just so many poets from Africa and the Caribbean and across the diaspora. Um, there's poems printed in there, translated from Shona and like Amharic and Arabic and Nigerian Pidgin and Kiswahili and English. And you can literally like compare and contrast the translations. It's really cool. There's wonderful accompanying illustrations. All of that good jazz. That book is available to buy now. I will again drop the link in the description if you'd like to support that one. Lastly, I want to say a thank you to Ella Jean of Mystery Planet Productions for her production skills. Um, we're dropping new episodes actually every week in February on a Wednesday, because why not? Um, so if you head to our website, lunarpoetrypodcast.com, you can uh, follow those uploads as they happen. Obviously, follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. But if you go to the website, you can see all of the 127 previous episodes with their accompanying transcripts. Um, and you can also go to our Poetry Podcast Finder, which has over 100 other wicked poetry podcasts from the UK and Ireland for you to listen to. Um, and uh, as an extra nudge to get people onto the site... I'll be uploading short pieces on some of my favourite Lunar episodes from the archive. Um, so do watch our social media as well for those going up. You can keep up with everything Lunar by following at Lunar Poetry Podcasts on Facebook or at Lunar Poetry Pod on Twitter. Uh, yeah, as I said before, subscribe to us wherever you go for your quality podcasts. Uh, Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, whatever, we're everywhere. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with somebody who also might enjoy it. Word of mouth really is the best recommendation for us. 
and as the wonderful Arthur O'Shaughnessy once wrote and Willy Wonka once said, we are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams. Until next time, I've been your host doing the most, the repeat beat poet. Peace out, keep reading and thank you for listening.